Good morning, everybody. I'm Luke, and it's my privilege to continue our series on Matthew following the King. We are in Matthew 6, 16 through 18 this morning, so if you brought your Bible, you can turn there. The title of my message is, And Whenever You Fast. So you can probably guess what I'm going to talk about. And whenever you fast. Fasting. Fasting is an incredibly powerful practice that Jesus did and commanded his disciples to do, but also an incredibly misunderstood one. And I'm afraid because of all of the misunderstandings that come along with fasting, it's an undervalued practice. In fact, one of those groups, it might have been Barna, they found that only 2% of Christians fast at least once a week. Yeah, not that surprising, right? But only 2% of Christians fast once per week. And it's interesting because um, Jesus commanded us to fast, but he also commanded us to pray. Guarantee you a lot more than 2% of Christians pray once per week. So why is it that there's a discrepancy? We're going to explore that. And before I go any farther, why don't we read the passage? Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I want to point out that Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. And man, I wish he would have said if. (laughs) Right? Wouldn't it be great if Bible reading and worship and prayer, those are like the essentials, those are the core, but then you have an elective selection of spiritual disciplines to choose from. You can do fasting, or you can do silence and solitude, or you can do one or the other. No, it's not if you fast, it's when you fast. And so we're going to talk about fasting And then also in this passage, there's a lot about heavenly reward and don't do things in front of other people so as to impress them. And in my message on August 7th, I covered a lot of that. Wilson covered a lot of that kind of part of it a week later about not impressing people with our religious activity, et cetera. So if you want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to that. But we're going to focus more on fasting for the morning. So he didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast. And that leads me to my first point that Fasting, unfortunately, is meant to be a regular practice for disciples of Jesus. It is meant to be a regular practice for us. Not many amens this morning. <laughs> I'm like, wow. You Why? Well, for one, fasting has been a common and routine practice historically for Christians and for the church. In this ancient Christian document, a catechetical document called the Didache that actually dates back to the first century. So right along the time, right around the time that the Bible, the New Testament was being written, this document was also being written. Again, it served as a, a catechism or a collection of religious teachings and principles for the Christian church. Here's commentary on the Didache about fasting. Chapter 8 
of the DDK, suggests that fasts are not to be on the second day and on the fifth day with the hypocrites, or those would be the, the Jewish Pharisees. They always fasted on Monday and Thursday. So not to be on the second day and on the fifth day with the hypocrites, but on the fourth day and on the preparation day. So fasting Wednesday and Friday plus worshiping on the Lord's day constituted the Christian week. And the way that the church would fast would be from sunrise to sunset. So they'd wake up, skip breakfast, skip lunch, and then eat dinner every single Wednesday and every single Friday. That was just a common practice amongst the church. And really, it wasn't until a few centuries ago that fasting started to become more rare among Christians. John Wesley is famous for this quote about fasting. I don't remember the exact details of it, but essentially he was calling out how the church had recently in his time neglected the practice of every Monday, or every Wednesday and Friday fasting. And so it really was only just a few centuries ago that the church kind of stopped doing this. And so I want to explore why that was for a second. Like, why was, if fasting was such a central practice to the church from the very beginning all the way into the 19th and 20, and even a little bit into the 20th century, what has happened in the last 100 or 150 years or so that has made fasting go from a regular practice for the church to a 2% practice for the church? And there are many reasons, certainly there are many reasons for this, but I think one of them is that we live in a time and culture that is consumed with pleasure seeking. We live in a time and a culture that is consumed with the seeking out of pleasure. I mean, think about what exists today. If you want food, you can get it delivered to your door. If you want, and you can even get, get alcohol delivered to your door these days. If you want pornography, it's one click away on your device or one click away on your phone. If you, if you want sex, you can download Tinder and within an hour, you can probably have someone on their way to your house. And again, not to mention all of the pleasures and things we can explore on our phones, social media, uh, other forms of media, etc. So we live in a culture and a day where pleasure-seeking is, is more prevalent and widespread than ever before. And so it only makes sense that a spiritual, a spiritual, <laughs> spiritual discipline designed to inhibit us and restrain us from pleasure for a certain amount of time would fall by the wayside. It really is in our culture right now like fighting gravity. To do something, to make a decision to abstain from a pleasure, it's like fighting gravity in our culture. And you know, fighting gravity, like you need the most power and energy just to get off the ground. Like you think about space shuttles that take off, the most, it takes the most energy to get off the ground. The further you get away from the Earth's gravitational pull, the less power and energy you need to go. In the same way in our culture right now, we, if we want to break free from that um, controlling desire that exists all throughout our culture and society of seeking pleasure, we need like a burst out of it. We don't just need like to say a prayer. Like we need to fast. We need to do something that says, no, I am not just being swept away along with 
along with this, this pleasure-seeking, pleasure-control thing. It's like fighting gravity. So all in all, it's a great time for the church to start fasting again. This time and day right now is a great time for the church to start fasting again. And so fasting, it's a practice that all Christians should work toward incorporating into their life. If you are not fasting right now and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, let today be the day that you start considering, planning, and thinking about how you're going to incorporate fasting into your life. Now, the early church did it, as I told you, every Wednesday and Friday from sunrise to sunset. So they would skip breakfast and lunch every Wednesday and Friday. Jesus doesn't necessarily define explicitly how often we are supposed to fast, but the way he talks about it implies regularity. He doesn't say that one time a year when you fast. He says when you fast, whenever you fast. And he compares them to the Jewish Pharisees at the time who were fasting twice a week at that time. So long story short, it should be a regular part of our lives. Now, I do want to give some caveats If you're pregnant, if you're nursing, you can't fast, understand that. Some of you have health issues where fasting would, you just can't fast. You need to eat because of health issues. And and so you would be an exception to this. And, And I even have a friend who really, really, really wants to fast. But whenever he fasts, he gets, at least for too long, he sees crippling migraines and sickness. And And so for some of you, I know there are some exceptions, so I at least want to call that out. But for the majority of us, fasting is something that the Holy Spirit is inviting us into this morning. Regular fasting, not just a once a year thing, not just an event, a regular part of our life. So if that's what the Holy Spirit's inviting us into, We should take it seriously, but before we go any further, I better just kind of define what fasting is and what fasting isn't, because again, like I said before, there are a lot of misunderstandings about fasting. So fasting, defined, is this, abstaining from all food for a duration of time. Pretty simple. This is from a commentary on the passage we just read by a guy named Clark The Greek words for not and eat are used together to create the word fast. Hence, fast means a total abstinence from food for a certain time. Abstaining from flesh and living on fish and vegetables, etc. is no fast. It's not a fast. Or may be rather considered a burlesque on fasting. What's the point here? One misunderstanding is that people have called restrictive diets fasting. Like, you know, you ever heard of the Daniel fast before where you only eat fruits and vegetables or um, a fast where you cut out gluten or, or dairy? You know, it's not those, I'm not saying they're bad things to do. They're probably really great things to do for health and even spirituality. But biblically, those are not fasts. Restrictive diets are not fasts. Um, also, just giving something up isn't the idea of fasting. You know, I, I used to think that, you know, I really hate the idea of not eating, so I'll just fast from TV once a week, and that'll be, that. I can check my card for fasting. 
or I'm just gonna give up social media for a while, I'm gonna fast from social media. You can't fast from social media. You can't fast from TV. Why? Because fasting inherently implies giving up food. You can't separate giving up food from the idea of biblical fasting. And again, it doesn't mean that giving up social media for a portion of time isn't a good idea. It's probably a really good idea. So do it. But it's not do that or fast. It's do that and fast. Now, one of the things about these kind of other pleasures that I'm describing, like social media or maybe alcohol or, or TV, stuff like that, those, these kind of other pleasures that we, have, that we feel it from time to time, we should give up for some uh, in order to kind of solidify our devotion to the Lord. One of the powerful things about fasting is that when we get into a routine practice of fasting, when we are used to saying no to our appetite, when we're used to saying no to that drive in us that makes us want to eat, all because we want to um, remove distractions from our walk with Jesus and connect with him on a heart-to-heart level, when we get into a practice of fasting, it actually makes giving up all of those other pleasures easier. It makes moderating all of those other pleasures easier. I mean, I saw this in my own life. For the longest time, I knew that I was spending too much time on social media. I knew I just was, this is taking up too much of my time, and I would over and over again try to set goals to limit my social media use, and they would always be temporary and never last. You know what got me breakthrough on that? Incorporating a regular discipline of fasting into my life. And for some of you, the thing that you have been struggling to moderate, again, these are, we're not talking about sinful things here. We're talking about good things that in moderation are okay, but in excess can turn into sin or idolatry or distraction. Um, some of you in here, you've been dealing with one of these kinds of, of pleasures for a while now, and you're like, I just need to stop drinking so much. I just need to stop being on social media so much. I need to stop um, spending so much time on whatever it is. And you've been struggling to get breakthrough there. Try incorporating fasting into your life and see what happens. You see, when we get into the discipline and the habit of saying no in that area, in the area of food, it extends into all of the other areas of our lives. So that's what fasting is. What is fasting not? What are things that we believe about fasting that aren't true? So the first one is sometimes we think that fasting is about getting God to do something for us. But in all honesty, fasting is less about getting God to do something and more about what God does in me. Fasting is less about getting God to do something and more about what God is doing in me, in my heart, in my mind, in my life. 
Now, I know you do have a few places in the Old Testament. You have David, who's fasting for the life of a baby. You have Nineveh, after Jonah preaches to them, they call a fast and God spares them judgment. But in all of these examples, it's less about the fast. It wasn't like, uh, you know, fast equaled God doing what they wanted him to do. It was fasting was a part of their overall repentant heart that was seeking God and was calling on God. And it was actually from that seeking heart posture that God responded, not because they did the right activities, not because they did the right fast. And so fasting, it's not about getting God to do something. Fasting is primarily about my transformation. That's what I mean when I say about what God does in me. My transformation. My transformation from the person I am now to someone who looks more like Jesus. Fasting is about my transformation. And in my experience with fasting, one of my favorite aspects of it is that while I'm fasting, every time that I get hungry, I think about Jesus. Because how easy is it for our, in our days, in the busyness, busyness of our families and school and work and whatever we're doing, how easy is it to just go eight hours without thinking about God one time? Am I the only one up here? Like, is, is, it's, that happens, right? Some of you super spiritual people, it doesn't happen for you. But <laughs> that happens, right? We get distracted. We get focused on what we're doing. It's human. It's normal. It happens to me all the time. But when I fast, every time that I get hungry, I'm reminded of why I'm hungry. I'm reminded of the fact that I can't go get a snack. And I'm reminded, oh, Jesus, you're with me. Jesus, you are my food. Jesus, I'd actually depend on you even more than I depend on food. And I'm reminded every, and, and I'm reminded day, a moment after moment throughout the day, and that has an impact on my heart and on my mind. When we, just that alone, just dwelling on him more and not just going into kind of autopilot mode during the day, that has an impact on us. That transforms us. Fasting also has, as I said before, it strengthened my ability to say no to the other desires of the flesh. And so fasting. So all this on fasting, this is all good. But if we stop here with our understanding of fasting, we are missing something about fasting that's absolutely vital. And here's the last point that I want to camp out on for a little bit that was very new to me in my study on this topic, and I wonder if it'll be new to any of you. So last point, fasting is not just a spiritual discipline, a personal spiritual discipline, but a practice connected with facilitating and orienting our hearts toward biblical justice. Fasting is actually not just about me personally. It's about orienting my heart towards biblical justice. This comes from Isaiah 58. Let's read it. Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 7. This is... So there's kind of a back and forth here, like God is talking to the Israelites and then the Israelites talk back to God and it's kind of narrated through the prophet Isaiah. 
Here we go. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed it? Again, it's Israelites saying that to God. Yet on the, here's God's response. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Here's a key, key phrase here. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? It's not just a personal spiritual discipline. So what's Isaiah saying here in a nutshell? He's saying if our fasting doesn't impact the way that we treat those around us, especially those who are experiencing injustice, hunger, oppression, a lack of clothing, then God is not pleased with it. It is not the fast he desires. If it doesn't impact the way we treat people, if it doesn't impact the way we treat the marginalized, the fast, it's not the fast that he desires. Now, I do want to offer a few words of clarification because we live in a country that is in a culture war right now and has been for a while. And I know that by even using the term justice or injustice, I am starting to bring that culture war to the forefront. And so what I want to say is that I know the political right has an idea of what justice is, and I know the political left has ideas as to what justice is. I'm not talking about either of those right now. I'm talking about what the Bible has to say about justice. Because the biblical concept of justice, while there may be truth in both the right and the left in some degree or in some way, the biblical concept of justice is so much more beautiful and grounded and holistic and comprehensive than either of these other secular forms of justice. And so we're, when we talk about justice, we're ta I'm talking about biblical justice. And the second thing I want to clarify is that within that culture war that I just described, there are narratives that each side tries to use in order to get us to think a certain way about the poor and about the hungry and about the oppressed and about the marginalized. There's certain narratives or stories that are told through media and social media and through politicians, stories that are told that try to get us to think and feel a certain way about the poor. And so the right, the story that the right often tells is one that minimizes unjust circumstances and emphasizes personal responsibility. So the story is that 
circumstances are not that relevant. We don't need to consider them that much. What we need to do is just encourage people to make right decisions and to, you know, that phrase, pull themselves up by their bootstraps out of whatever situation they find themselves in. The poor, if they just started making the right decisions, they could get out of the place that they are in. That's how the right talks about the poor. And then, and so, yeah, and then the left, they talk about the poor, they minimize personal responsibility and emphasize unjust circumstances. So it's all about the circumstances that were completely out of a person's control, that they have no ability to rise up out of, that they are stuck in forever and personal decision-making and, um, and responsibility don't really play much of a role in their escaping from poverty. So we have these two narratives that are being fed to us. Whatever, whatever your political inclinations are, I just hope you know that, that there are stories that are trying, that, that the political left and right are trying to tell us that get us to think a certain way about the poor. But lucky for us, the Bible has something to say about the poor. The Bible has a narrative about the poor. And you wanna know what the Bible says about the poor to us, the church? Feed them. Feed them. Love the poor. Care for the poor. Have compassion on the poor. Advocate for the poor. That's what the Bible has to say about the poor. And I know that for some of us, let me just be real. Our hearts have grown cold towards the poor and the needy because, again, we're fed these stories that tell us that they're just a bunch of irresponsible people that should be making better decisions, and if they were, they wouldn't be in the place that they are in. You know what? There might be some truth in that, but that's not the way that the Bible trains us to think about the poor. The way the Bible trains us to think about the poor is feed them, love them. I mean, Jesus himself said the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to loose the yoke of injustice, to set the oppressed free. Jesus cared about the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so if you're sitting in this room right now and you've realized that some coldness towards the poor, some hard-heartedness or some judgment has risen up in your heart. This is a, the Lord is inviting you today to allow him to soften your heart. And again, it's not so that you can go and be on the other political side. The other political side has issues too. It's so that you can be on the Bible side. Like we gotta, st man, it's not about the right versus the left. It's about, like it's not like the Bible is, is squarely in the middle of the right and the left. The Bible transcends both of those categories. The way that Jesus and, yeah. The way Jesus calls us to think transcends both of those categories. It's like we're speaking another language. And then some of you in here, you might feel like you do really care about the poor because you vote for leaders who are gonna bring about systems that provide more government assistance and you, you, know, you, you debate with people who on social media who aren't looking at the poor the right way. That's not the biblical ethic of caring for the poor either. It's feed them yourself. It's sacrifice for them yourself. It's give to them yourself. It's not try to like influence culture or society to think about them a certain way. It's to love them yourself. So whatever side you find yourself on, I believe God's calling us higher in how we view the poor. And how does this relate to fasting? 
This relates to fasting because at the very least, when I fast, I should be identifying with the experience of the hungry, the poor, the oppressed, etc., and allowing God to mold my heart into one that has more compassion. At the very least, when I fast, I should be thinking about the fact that, man, this is what it's like to have to skip a meal. There are people out there who do this not because they choose to, but because they don't have the resources to have three meals a day. Man, what if tomorrow I had to do this again? Or, or if I'm fasting breakfast and lunch, what if I didn't have a great dinner to come home to? I mean, when I fast breakfast and lunch, I get home, it is on. Like, I'm in the kitchen, <laughs> I'm cooking up, you know, pasta primavera or barbacoa street tacos or something like after I fast, I'm ready to go for dinner, right? But, <laughs> but what, if when you, what, if when you, what if you fast breakfast and lunch, you come home, you don't have a big dinner to come home to? What would that be like? And so part of the point of fasting is to identify what it would be like for those that really do have to skip meals sometimes. And again, compassion should come up because of that. This is an extreme quote from Gregory the Great, but I think it has really good truth in it. So I want to read it to you. Gregory the Great, John Calvin called Gregory the Great the last great pope. So he's from the year 500. Luther liked him too. So he's, he, he was kind of before the age of Catholic, of some of the corruption in the Catholic church. But Gregory the Great, this is what he said. A man fasts not to God, but to himself. If he does not give to the poor what he denies his belly for a time, but reserves it to be given to his belly later. <laughs> yeah. And I read that and it just got me thinking, what would it look like? And again, I don't think, I don't think we need to take that at totally, you know, black and white. Like, I think there can be value in fasting even if you don't provide someone else a meal during your fast. But I think the point he's making here that's really valid is, what would it look like for me fasting to be able to provide for somebody else, not just get me a good spiritual pick-me-up in the moment. You know, this Greek apologist from the second century who wrote about the Christian church, and this is when the Christian church was only like 50 years old, right? Um, Aristides, Aristides said, it's not gonna be up on the screen, but Aristides said this about the Christian church. <clears throat> Let me just read the quote from the book. Aristides, a Greek philosopher living in the second century, wrote an apologetic of the Christian movement that listed many of the unique ways of living that the early church had adopted. He noted that if anyone among them comes into want while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast for two or three days for him. In this way, they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. So the early church, one of the ways they provided for the poor was they fasted. And again, it, it challenges our modern notion of fasting because I've always thought of fasting as just something I do, me and God. Again, you don't want to show it off. You don't want people to see it. So it's just between me and God and, and it's for my benefit spiritually. But the greater definition of fasting, the bigger picture of fasting that I think God's inviting us to embrace this morning is that our fasting should actually lead to other people being fed. Maybe not in a completely linear way where 
every meal I fast, I go buy someone a meal, although that would not be a great, that would not be a bad idea. But every time I fast, my heart breaks a little bit more for those that are hungry and breaks a little bit more for those that are impoverished. And as my heart breaks a little bit more, I'm moved to act more frequently in my life and those around me are influenced by that. I think that's what God is inviting us into. I think there's a deeper picture of fasting that we can embrace. So I'm gonna invite Shannon to come back out. But there is so much untapped power available to the church in the spiritual practice of fasting. There is, I believe there is so much power. I mean, only 2% of the church right now fasts on a regular basis. What if at Vineyard Northwest, 50% of us fasted on a regular basis? What would that do for our spiritual vitality? What would that do for the poor and the marginalized in our communities? There is so much untapped power here. And I want to encourage you that Maybe the idea of fasting twice a week, breakfast and lunch, just feels overwhelmingly intimidating. Don't start there. You don't even, don't even start with once a week. Like try a few times a month starting off and maybe just take, just, just skip one meal. Like work up towards it. Don't feel the pressure to do it all at once. But I'm telling you that getting into this practice of fasting and staying consistent with it, it is gonna have dramatic impact on your spiritual life and on your heart. It is so worth it. And I think for some of you, this is going to be the break. This is going to be the beginning of the breakthrough that you've been wanting. I know that some of you in here, you're, you're struggling with just stuff you know that God's calling you to give up. Like you know that God wants you to stop doing fill in the blank or to stop doing this so much to stop drinking so much maybe for some of you it literally is food maybe you just feel out of control with eating habits and you overeat all the time or, or maybe for some of you it's sexual like there's I know for some of you you're caught in this this the struggle and what feels like a trap and I'm, I feel like the Lord is inviting you this morning to Embrace the spiritual practice of fasting and see what happens in that other realm that is on your heart. And I know, and another thing I meant to say earlier, um, some of you, this would be another caveat to someone who probably shouldn't be fasting right now. Some of you are struggling with eating disorders and food brings shame and fear and weirdness and, or maybe you used to struggle with it, or maybe you're struggling with it right now. And I wanna tell you that there is freedom for you from, there's freedom from eating disorders this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do. Freedom from anorexia and bulimia, freedom from just horrible thoughts about fasting. And while you might not be fasting right now, I feel the Lord saying that you're gonna get free from this eating disorder, and then you're gonna incorporate a Jesus kind of fast into your everyday life. And it's gonna be this beautiful moment of redemption and reconciliation and, and uh, yeah, God coming and rewriting your story. So I believe there's freedom from eating disorders this morning. And so why don't you all just stand with me? We're gonna pray. 
For those of you that feel stuck in a, in a fleshly desire, fleshly pleasure right now, or, or you know that you've been doing something too much and God is calling you to, to, to moderate, calling you to, to give something up for a season, I'm just gonna pray for you first. So you, if you do whatever you wanna do to receive this. Father, thank you that you have the power to completely free us from whatever the enemy is throwing at us. You have the power to address any craving that exists within us. To, you have the power to give us victory over any temptation. I even think for some of you, the Lord is wanting you to start with just declaring that you're gonna get free. Like there's a hopelessness involved in this. There's a despair that's involved in this where you're just never gonna get out of this. No, the Lord says you will be free from this. You will be free from this. You will achieve victory in this area. So I bless you in Jesus' name to step into the freedom and the victory of the Lord. And also for those of you that are dealing with an eating disorder right now, or maybe you know someone who is, you can intercede for them. Um, do something to receive this as well. It doesn't have to be super visible, but just do something to receive it. So in Jesus' name, I, with Jesus' power and authority, release freedom over you from whatever the eating disorder is that you're dealing with. I thank you, Lord, for right now rewriting mental paradigms and mental scripts about food. And I thank you, Lord, that you are giving these people your perspective of them and your perspective of their body, that their body is good. Their body is a good thing. It's not a thing corrupted by whatever. Their body is good. It doesn't always choose good things, but in its nature, it is a good thing because it is them. We are not separate from our body. And so um, thank you, Lord, that you're rewriting those thoughts and those paradigms and those scripts. And I release freedom over you in Jesus' name as well. And for all of us, Lord, I ask that however you're asking us to step into this practice of fasting, that you would give us the conviction and the courage to actually do it and to not give up on it. And I just thank you in advance, Lord, for all of the power that's going to be released through your people starting to make fasting a regular practice. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Well, Thank you all so much for coming this morning. We are, I uh, want to remind you of the Newcomers Luncheon that is going to be happening out in the atrium. Go to that if you want to. If not, see you next week.